Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday, time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This time we are airing the first part of our series on fingernails. This originally came out September 1st, 2020. Yeah, let's dive right in. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be embarking on part one of an exploration of nails. Not nails like you hit with a hammer, though I guess you could hit them with a hammer, though that would be really bad. <laughs> I'm talking about the kind of nails on the human body. Uh, and I was thinking uh, just the other day about how nails are sort of the mascot for idleness, for human idleness, because when humans are idle, what part of the body is going to get the most attention? I think it's almost always going to be the nail, right? You're either some people bite their nails. If you're not biting your nails, you're often like looking at your nails and kind of mm -hmm. observing like, oh, they're too long or like, oh, there's some kind of weird thing here. Perhaps this is idiosyncratic psychology of mine, but, but I think this is pretty common, right? Yeah, I mean, even if you're not even looking at them, sometimes you just sort of feel them, like you're just sort of feeling the edges of your nails and, you know, see, making sure everything's lined up there. Uh, for my own part, I, f I tend to find that I notice them the most when I am, uh, or in the, the, more in the past, really, but if I was driving into work, and I'd be stuck at a light or something, and then I would notice my nails, <laughs> and I would be, and that's when I would notice that I need to trim my nails, mm -hmm. and I would, of course, be in a position where I really shouldn't be trimming my nails. Um and then, you know, the rest of the time, I'm not really noticing them. That's why the good Lord made teeth. Well, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, that's not particularly my style, but I, I know a lot of people do it. Uh, my cat is a big, a big fan. Oh, doing yeah. That herself. I, I'm also not a nail biter, but I, I, there are people very close to me who are, and I have observed the, the, the behavior for many years up close and uh, with, with a lot of uh, thoughts about it. Yeah. So, so much like our two episodes on tomatoes last week, this is going to be a pair of episodes that that, that are going to get into some real weirdness. It's and and, yeah. and so I urge you to stick with us, even if you think, "Oh, fingernails, I have those. I don't want to hear two episodes about it." But really, I think I think you do, and I think a great place to start would be just to just touch on sort of the the obvious weird aspects of our fingernails. Uh, I was thinking about this today because they are. They're obviously living. They are, you know, they're part of our body, and yet they're not living in a way, right? They're like these things, these like little, uh, you know, almost like uh, like stones that come out of our our fingers, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, we think of ourselves as non-clawed animals. I think this is a pretty common intuitive grouping of animals that people make. It's like the kind with teeth and claws and the kind without. And a lot of them have teeth and claws because you got to. It's a hard world out there. But humans, you know, we've got tools and we've got social relationships and we've got language and all that. So we don't really need claws. But we kind of do because we kind of do have claws. Nails are, are not super formidable in a claw sense, but they're kind of claw-like. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking about how they're def our nails are definitely functional, and we'll get into a lot of those functions as we progress here. They, they do play a very real role in our lives, and yet on the same time, at the same time, they're very ornamental. So mm -hmm. their condition and their upkeep 
inevitably communicate something about ourselves to the world, you know? Uh, we, we can't help but think about our own nails at times when we're encountering other people. And like it or not, you're going to notice other people's nails. Are they, are they all done up? Are they bright and colorful? Are they, are they really making a statement? Are they, are they kind of grimy? Are they, you know, are they spotted with paint? Do they show wear and tear? Like these are, these are the, some of the things that our nails communicate. And, and it's 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 like if you're having a, a bad hair day or your hair's weird for whatever reason, you know you can put on a cap, and that's you know, in many circumstances, and you know you you, you kind of get by. But a bad nail day or mad bad nail days or months or what have you, that's often kind of difficult to ignore. But on both sides, right? I mean, you can wear gloves everywhere, but that's going to communicate something <laughs> else entirely. <laughs> you're going to look like you're ready to do some strangling. Or, yeah, you're uh, a Bond villain or something, yeah. Right. Uh, or, you know, uh, there actually is another type of nail that you didn't get to that has always stood out in my mind ever since I saw this movie when I was a little kid, which are the cyborg nails in Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. Do you remember the lady who has nails that she's, like, touching with a stylus from her computer and the oh, colors and they change on color, them are changing? Right? Yeah. Oh, Very yeah. cool. That's when will they cool. invent that? <laughs> yeah, um, and for for the time being, we're just left with with paints, right? Yeah. Um, and, and we'll get into the the use of, uh, of of paints and other ornamental techniques on our nails as well in these episodes, because ultimately, yeah, these the, these nails that we have um, are kind of at this intersection of so many different aspects of the human condition. And if you look close enough, especially if you go far back into prehistory or, or uh, look around the world at different cultural treatments of nails, uh, there's far more strangeness and magic and religious significance than, than people might expect, especially if you're just an American who just kind of clips them into the trash can. But maybe we should start with a quick look at the anatomy of a nail. Now, we're not going to go super deep on this, uh, but the, the simple version is that you've got the hard part of the nail. This applies to fingernails and toenails. The hard part of the nail is known as the nail plate. And the nail plate is made out of these compressed layers of former epidermal skin cells that have been keratinized. Keratinized is kind of, uh, it's your body doing to skin cells what Medusa does to people who invade her garden of rocks. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's filling the cells with keratin, which is this tough, fibrous, protective protein that makes up not only the nails, but also the hair. And, uh, and keratin is found in living skin cells as well. And then the keratinized cells in the nail plate make it not only tough, but relatively flexible and translucent. And the translucent quality of the nails is, it, I think it's one of the most interesting things about them. If you look close, you can kind of see through it to the flesh underneath and then to the capillary blood flow under that. If you look at it long enough, it might start to get a little creepy. Yeah, because because there's this sense that the nail is strong. We know the nail is, is strong, mm -hmm. and yet uh, the flesh that we see through that nail window looks very, you know, soft and delicate. And, and, and we all often know from experience that it is very sensitive under there. Absolutely. It's sort of like a window through your skin, uh, but uh, like a frosted glass window, you know, not exactly mm -hmm. uh, transparent, but translucent. But so where does the nail plate come from? Well, it comes from the nail matrix, which is found at the base of the nail. And this is sort of the cellular factory. It churns out new nail plate through cell division over time. And as new cells form at the base of the nail, it pushes the old nail out from the root, which is why nails grow. Now, it's interesting to note that there are nails are actually composed of three layers 
of that uh, fibrous uh, composite uh, keratin. And, and this is, of course, a, a fibrous protein. Like we said, it's found in hair and, and feathers and hoofs, claws and horns. Uh, and, but I was looking a little deeper into just the, the, sort of the structural integrity of the nail. And I read an article uh, from back in 2004 that was published in Experimental Biology by Farron et al., in which the researchers, quote, examined the structure and fracture properties of human fingernails to determine how they resist bending forces while preventing fractures running longitudinally in the nail bed. So we, we've all cracked a nail before, I, I imagine. It's Oof. not a, a fingernail than a toenail. That's a squick thing for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a, you know, but you know, it's it's a wonderful thing that we tend to see far more uh, latitudinal cracks uh, than the opposite. In other words, cracks tend to be more or less uh, parallel. Uh, to the edge of the nail as opposed to straight up the middle, which would obviously be far more traumatic. Not to say it doesn't occur, but um, uh, but generally you're going to have uh, one that's going across the nail. Mm-hmm. So that means that our nails are anisotropic, meaning the material has a different value when measured in different directions. And this is much like wood, uh, you know, which is stronger along the grain. Or like meat, you know, the the direction Mm. in which you slice a piece of meat makes a difference in how tender it is. Uh, The same thing would probably be true of your nails. Right. Uh, And and that's exactly what they ended up doing in this experiment, like tested, like cutting on nails, Uh, not living nails. I believe they were they were, you know, trimmings that they used in the experiment. But (laughs) (laughs) basically, there are long, narrow cells in the thick intermediate layer, while tile like cells in the thinner dorsal and ventral layers increase bending strength and prevents cracking from forming. Well, that's very nice. And really, all this lines up with just the way that we tend to use our nails, uh, scraping, prying, tweezing. If you've ever tried to use your fingernails as a screwdriver, you've hit up on some of the design limitations, but also mm. some of the flexibility of the nail. You'll find that, uh, yeah, if you're just pressing on something, if you're trying to like dig something out of your own skin, and you probably shouldn't do that, but if you are, you'll find that you have a fair amount of, uh, you know, um, of pressure you can exert on that nail, right? But if you start trying to go side to side with, a, uh, with, with the, the head of a screw, you're going to find, oh, well, it's not really uh, rigid enough to turn the screw. Uh, but fortunately, at the same time, um, it's not so brittle that I just rip my nail to pieces uh, when I'm trying and failing to do that. Oh, I've, n- I've never thought to put it into words like that, but you're absolutely right. Like twisting pressure on the nail does not feel as, as comfortable and easy as regular like tweezing or pressing pressure is. Yeah, I mean, not to say you can't turn a nail, I mean, turn a screw a little bit uh, with your nail, mm. uh, but... I think you'll find that if when it gets to the nitty gritty of trying to actually put some force into the uh, rotation of the screw, uh, you're going to realize that you should probably stop what you're doing and get an actual screwdriver. Now, there's a very interesting contradiction, a sort of psychological contradiction that comes with the nails, which is that they're the parts of our body that should be the toughest, you know, the ones we would put out front as as defensive parts, the teeth, the nails, they're, they're our defense mechanism. But... One thing you've noticed if you if you ever tried to trim a dog's toenails is that they generally do not like this at all. They do not want their toenails to be messed with, even though it's the hardest part of their body. And you can mess around with the soft parts of their body. They're usually fine with it. But you start going in for the nails and they get all squirmy and say, uh-uh, I want to clatter around on the floor forever. Uh, <laughs> and And you will not get a chance to do this. And there's actually a similar kind of contradiction, I think, that goes on in human psychology, because 
Think about all of the horrifying images that people, you know, they occur in movies. Of course, unfortunately, sometimes they're practiced in reality and they, they all probably just occur to us naturally. When you imagine something bad happening to your nails or your teeth, it's like a particular kind of vulnerability obsession. Yeah. And, and I should add, if you don't want to hear about any of this, you know, feel free to skip like maybe, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds, but we're not going to dwell on this long or in great detail. But, but yeah, it should be noted that fingernail based torture goes back quite a ways, uh, given the delicacy. Uh, and certainly there are a lot of nerves in our fingers and the nail actually makes our finger more sensitive, which is something that, that I hadn't really thought about before. But this was pointed out by uh, Evan Ryder, assistant professor in the Ronald O. Perlman Department of Dermatology at NYU Langone Health, quoted in a Mental Floss article by Jordan Rosenfeld from 2018. Yeah, the way I've read it put is that the by providing a counter pressure to your fingertip, it gives you special sensitivity in the skin cells in your fingertip that wouldn't be there otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is something to keep in mind. The next time you have some sort of issue with your nails where you find yourself asking that question, why do I have these? What is <laughs> what good are these nails doing me when they're causing me so much discomfort right now? Um, I, I know for, for my own part, I've in the past had... Um, ingrown toenails on both of my my big toes and uh, and had to have the thing where the, uh, the the podiatrist goes in and like removes a section of the toenail and kills the nail bed underneath it um, to to prevent that kind of thing from happening and i i kind of get the impression that this is not all that uncommon because i have other friends who uh we, we've compared toes and we're like oh yeah you had the same thing done <laughs> Well, I'm sorry you had to endure that, Robert, but I, I also do find it quite amusing that you have you have toe parties with your friends. <laughs> well, you know, I have to say that the procedure is far preferable to an ingrown toenail. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you, uh, you know, if, if you're having issues like that uh, and you should you know, definitely try and get some some help with it that is not yourself uh, toying around and trying to perform some sort of amateur surgery on yourself in the bathroom, uh, because that's only going to result in more pain. Um, speaking of which, I have to admit that I did not have the stomach to really dive into this topic of, uh, of nail torture in depth. I know there's a book, a famous book by um, George Riley Scott, uh, The History of Torture Throughout the Ages. And I skimmed that a little bit and quickly realized that my eyes were a little bigger than my stomach on that one. Um, but basically, you have a lot of accounts of denailing in there, either by just pulling the nails out or by first uh, using the insertion of a red-hot nail beneath the fingernail as a precursor to uh, denailing. Oof. George Riley Scott, by the way, also wrote a, a history of prostitution uh, in the early 20th century that I understand was one of, one of, if not the first, histories of prostitution that was not, like, uh, it was not uh, coming from a super-judgmental standpoint, like a moralizing standpoint. Ah, well, that's interesting. So we're, we're done with the, the nail torture that others inflict on us, uh, I think, at this point. But let's come back to that other form of sort of nail punishment that we uh, sometimes do to ourselves, nail biting. Oh, yeah. So as I said before, uh, I am not a habitual nail biter, but I have observed a bunch of it up close over the years. And so I, I don't know, I've, I've sort of like mused on it for a long time. Uh, so habitual nail biting is known clinically as onychophagia. And studies have found somewhere between maybe 20 to 30% of people in total do it, though it varies 
varies a lot by age. Um, so the 20 to 30% figure comes from a study published in 2017 in the Journal of Dermatological Treatment by uh, Pierre Halte et al. But um, according to some sources, nail-biting peaks in early years, especially in teenage years, with some estimates as high as 45% of teenagers doing it regularly, which sounds very high. But then again, I, I guess I don't know what teenagers do. I do have to come back to um, uh, the, the the name of the uh, of habitual nail biting, though, because the, uh, the the actual meaning of that is is the eating of to- of, uh, of fingernails, right? I mean, it's yeah. which is not actually what's going on, right? At least not in most cases. I don't know. Maybe yeah. who knows what some people swallow? But yeah, aphagia. That's you know mm-hmm. that's used in the terms for the eating of all kinds of things. Entomophagia is the eating of insects and so forth. Coprophagia, we don't need to get into. Mm-hmm. Hoagieophagia is the, the eating of, of hoagies, of great sandwiches. But uh, even if you're not swallowing the nails, uh, onychophagia can have a lot of negative consequences. For one thing, the, your nails are very dirty. They are sort of a hot spot for bacteria on your body. And uh, and so I was reading several articles about this. One thing I was reading was an article in uh, The Verge by Alessandra Potenza. And the author here pointed out that uh, nail biting can also have dental consequences. Uh, so she pointed to some dental health blogs that I was looking at. And several of these had dentists citing an estimate from the Academy of General Dentistry that, quote, nail biting can result in up to $4,000 in additional dental bills over one lifetime. Uh, because uh, there are a number of reasons, but apparently it, it's not good for your teeth to be chewing too much in any case. And it's especially not good to be always putting chewing pressure down with your front teeth. I mean, you think about it, that's not normally how you chew. Normally you chew kind of like with the pressing of your back teeth. Uh, but, but when you're biting with your nails, you're kind of aligning your jaw in a strange way to bring your front teeth together and turn them into clippers. But beyond that, there's also just the the exchange of bacteria from one place to the other. And it, and it actually does go both ways. So you're getting bacteria from under your fingernails and your fingertips into your mouth. But you're also getting bacteria from your mouth under your fingernails, which can cause infections there. And apparently it can be bad both ways. Yeah. So there's really no upside to doing it. Um, obviously, just stopping is, is easier said than done. Uh, but... Uh, but but uh, yeah, from from a purely health standpoint, um, it's best to stay away from it. But that leads to the interesting question of why we bite our nails in the first place, and why some people, especially in engage in uh, onychophagia, like the the habitual, repetitive biting of the nails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was reading a, an interesting article about this in Vox by the science writer Joseph Stromberg. And uh, so he cites that there were several early theories on nail biting, of course, before we had modern psychology. One, of course, was Freud and Freud grouped nail biting as one of the obsessions that fell under the oral receptive personality. And in Freudian theory, the idea was that if a if a child nursed too much during infancy, they would grow up to have this oral fixation, the oral receptive fixation, uh, which caused them to always like chew on their nails and like put objects in their mouth, you know, the kind of people who are always like putting a stick in their mouth or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, you know, this is Freudianism. There's no real evidence for this. And as far as I could tell, there's never been any evidence that's turned up that there's any connection whatsoever between nursing in early childhood and and so-called oral fixations. It just seems to be another one of those things that, you know, Freud kind of said it, but there's no reason to believe it's true. 
Unless you're one of those people that has one of those bumper stickers that says, Freud said it, I believe it, that settles it. (laughs) Now, more recently, nail-biting has been listed in the DSM as a form of OCD, of uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, But not all experts agree that this is the best categorization for it, as not all forms of nail-biting are universally considered really obsessive. Um, and so another theory has emerged that nail biting is, is sort of a form of emotion regulation. Just one example of this uh, is a study from 2015 published in the Journal of Behavior Therapy and Experimental Psychiatry by Sarah Roberts et al. Uh, called The Impact of Emotions on Body-Focused Repetitive Behaviors, Evidence from a Non-Treatment-Seeking Sample. And uh, this is a whole class of of behaviors, body-focused repetitive behaviors that can involve nail-biting, hair-pulling, you know, uh, various things that are sort of often grooming-related, skin-picking, that kind of stuff. And so in this study, they tested people in several different kinds of scenarios that were trying to elicit certain emotional reactions uh, one was a frustration situation in which subjects would be given a difficult job to do that that could not possibly be done in the time they were given to do it. Um, another one was a boredom scenario where people were left in a room with nothing to do. Another one was an anxiety scenario where they were asked to watch an extremely terrifying movie scene. I think it was a, a plane crash scene from the movie Alive. That's a rough one. I've never seen it. Is that the one where the soccer players uh, resort to cannibalism? Yeah, that's the one based on uh, true uh, occurrences, uh, but but certainly is notable for having just a very terrifying and at least at the time, uh, very convincing uh, airplane uh, crash scene. I'm not sure how it holds up today, but uh, I imagine it holds up pretty well. And then finally, there was a relaxation condition where they're watching a video. Uh, they're sitting in a nice comfy chair and they're watching video of a, a pleasant beach scene. Oh, and, that's nice, too. Yeah. Uh, I like that movie a lot. <laughs> well, it makes you wonder. I kind of want to see the video. Like, how exactly relaxing is this beach? What if you're looking at this beach and thinking like, ooh, I don't know, sharks? <laughs> I, yeah, I guess you could. Um, uh, it certainly reminds There are these wonderful um, videos called um, uh, Moving Art that you can find on, I think they're on Netflix. And uh, they're basically that kind of vibe, like really soothing ambient music. Um and then these just beautiful scenes of things like beaches or mountains and sometimes wildlife, depending on what uh, the theme of the episode is. But it's some great nap time fare. Oh, nice. Uh, well, so anyway, so the results of the study were basically that uh, observed behaviors and reported desire to bite the nails and, and engage in these uh, repetitive body focused uh, behaviors. It, it singled out two situations, especially which were stress and boredom. And uh, in Stromberg's article, he, he quotes Fred Penzel, who's a psychologist who helps patients who, who deal with nail biting. And Penzel says uh, of people in these conditions, quote, when they're understimulated, the behavior provides stimulation. And when they're overstimulated, it actually helps them calm down. And he compares it to nicotine, actually, with the idea that the nicotine in cigarettes can sort of be a stimulant when you are understimulated, and it can be a relaxant when you are overstimulated. Hmm. Uh, so another question is, how do you quit if, you, if you're a nail biter and you want to stop? I've read several ideas. Uh, one, of course, is just trying to replace nail biting with an incompatible alternative activity. So in situations where you might find yourself biting your nails, have something that you're doing with your hands that, you know, you can't bite your nails at the same time. Or alternately, uh, I've read uh, people say, hey, just wear gloves or put tape over the ends of your fingers. There's mm-hmm. even there are even companies that make 
specially tailored, nasty tasting clear nail polish so that if you put your fingers in your mouth, it is disgusting. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So we're talking about nails. And one question that uh, I find myself thinking about when when sometimes I'm, I'm bored or idle and I start staring at my own nails is how fast exactly do these suckers grow? Uh, well, there is an answer to this, and it varies from per- not o- not only from person to person, but throughout a person's lifetime. But an average figure that's often cited is that fingernails tend to grow about 0.1 millimeters per day, one-tenth of a millimeter per day. So at this rate, if you wanted to grow nails as long as a six-meter saltwater crocodile, it would take about 60,000 days or about 164 years. But unfortunately, even if you could live that long, your nails would probably not keep growing at such a dependable rate indefinitely. And one of the great studies in the history of fingernail research is actually uh, something that contributes to our understanding of this fact. And it's something that's also in the spirit of Albert Hofmann with LSD or Barry Marshall, the guy who put a helicobacter pylori in his in his stomach to prove that it was the cause of ulcers rather than, say, stress or acidic foods. Uh, it It is a bold act of self-experimentation and, I will say, an astonishing feat of commitment over time. And this is the story of a doctor named William Bean. Oh, all right. So Dr. William B. Bean was a physician and a medical historian who lived from 1909 to 1989, and he taught medicine at the University of Iowa College of Medicine and the University of Texas in Galveston. In addition to his medical practice and his teaching and his research, William Bean was a prolific writer, and I think it's worth saying that he was also an unusually good writer. An example that I saw pointed out in a paper on Bean's life was uh, a passage that I'm about to read, which, which he wrote simply praising the virtues of books for the dedication of a library. And I just thought this was so lovely. Uh, so, Robert, do you mind if I read this here? Oh, go for it. Bean wrote, Books remind us of friendship. They lead us to equanimity and peace at least peace of mind. They help us maintain our individuality without the austere and crushing loneliness of those who love only themselves. The wisdom we gain from books leads us to act as though we were building our ideas for eternity, mindful that the nature of life and death are so ordered that we and our works are fleeting and falling grains of sand in the hourglass of time. If we can avoid the apathy of those who claim to know that nothing matters and the sheer folly of those who know that they personally matter immensely, we shall have been worthy successors to that silent company of physicians, our medical forebears whose spirits watch over us here. Through the careful and scholarly making and the wise use of books and libraries, they build our great tradition. By following them, we must add to it as physicians wise and humble in the care, the comfort, and sometimes in the cure of our fellows in their sickness and in their sorrow. Oh, that is beautiful. And he actually brings some of this uh, some of this thoughtful writing spirit to his scientific papers. Uh, so this really remarkable self-experiment that William Bean carried out is revealed by the title of a paper that he published in 1980 in the Archives of Internal Medicine called Nail Growth, 35 Years of Observation. Oh, wow. 
that is dedication. And yeah, so, so that is correct. You, you are understanding the title correctly there. William Bean meticulously tracked the rate of his own nail growth for 35 years, beginning sometime in the early 1940s, I think even as early as 1941. And he published his findings in a series of scientific articles, the first of which appeared in 1953 and all the way up until 1980. I think the one in 1980 was the last one. So thinking about this problem, I, I immediately would have a question, which is how exactly do you track how much your nails grow, right? Like you can look at your nail and I don't know, it looks this long today, but uh, <laughs> like if, if you clip them eventually or if something comes off of them, how do you know how much it has grown? Yeah, I know when 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 you brought up this study, like the first thing that comes to mind is some is like a bearded uh, professor type who has one hand that has those big long spiral fingernails on uh -huh. it. No, he didn't do that. Uh, he, no, but he did find an interesting way. Bean actually explains in this paper that there are a number of ways to track the growth of your nails, uh, and this is his method. Quote. I make an indentation with the little file commonly employed to open small glass vials. On the first day of each month, I file a transverse groove just at the edge of the free margin of the cuticle, being careful not to push it back or interfere with it within a week or two after marking the nail. The end is recorded when the mark has just reached the free margin of the nail, exactly 1.45 centimeters from the start. Early in my observations, I measured nail clippings by linear growth and by weight. With careful calculations, I found that anywhere from 25% to more than 50% of the nail had been used up by unnoticed attrition. Not only does the length of the nail wear away, but the dorsal surface also wears down. Mm. If a fingernail is trimmed with scissors and not filed, sharp angles can be felt, since scissors simply takes away bites. Without filing, these sharp points disappear in a day or two from unnoticed wear and tear. Uh, and I found this very interesting. So even apart from clipping, Bean observes that somewhere between a quarter and a half of the mass of the nail just vanishes over time through regular wear and tear. Yeah, it's it's. It, we, we easily take these these tools that are our fingernails for granted because we use them all the time to, to varying degrees to interact with the world around us. But they are re self-replenishing, you know, unlike uh, the, the, the various real tools we use uh, on the on the, the on natural materials, uh, those we inevitably have to replace as they wear out. Yeah, it absolutely makes logical sense, but it's it's just hard to square that with my experience because I feel like I never notice my my fingernails just being worn away, but obviously it happens a lot. Yeah, I mean it, like like you say, if nothing else, you'll notice that that sh the sharp edge will go away um, you know, pretty quickly on its own even if you don't file them. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Uh, and I, I also want to note Bean's dedication to accuracy and control, uh, since he notes that at one point, to make sure that the cuticle itself was not advancing or receding unnoticed, of course, because, you know, if the cuticle was moving, that would change how his measurements were happening with the, with the file in the, the nail plate. Uh, just to make sure the cuticle wasn't moving, Bean made a tattoo in his thumbnail to use as a benchmark. What? A little more uh, on his on his method. This is a quote from an earlier paper by Bean, uh, which was reproduced in a Discover Magazine article on him I was reading. Uh, so Bean writes, quote, 
When I first began to measure the rate of nail growth, I scored marks on all my nails. Within a few months, I found that each nail had its own pace. This was clearly distinguishable, even by the rather crude method that I used. Some nails grew rapidly, some in an intermediate phase less rapidly, and some slowly. The differences were small but regular. There was consistency in the variation, so if I applied a ratio, I could tell by measuring one nail what the others were doing. And this I did on several occasions. In simple terms, toenails grew more slowly than nails of the hand, and the nail of the middle finger grows more rapidly than the nails of either the thumb or the little finger or the other two middle fingers. Interesting. So the middle finger is the one that he found to, uh, to to grow the fastest. Yes, and this is a finding that has been reproduced in other studies that I'll mention in a minute, which is surprisingly interesting. Yeah, uh, I would have guessed the index finger. Uh, just thinking about like the way that I interact with things with my finger now, I would think, well, that's the one you're most likely, you know, you see some sort of strange film on a window or something and you need to scratch at it. You're going to use your index, surely. Uh, so that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and we'll get to possible explanations for this difference in, in just a bit here. But I want to read uh, Bean's summary of his paper from, from 1980. He says, quote, A 35-year observation of the growth of my nails indicates the slowing of growth with increasing age. The average daily growth of the left thumbnail, for instance, has varied from 0.123 millimeters a day during the first part of the study, when I was 32 years of age, to 0.095 millimeters a day at the age of 67. Wow. And, uh, and pursuing that line of thought a little further, he actually does get strangely thoughtful and melancholy about it. Or maybe not melancholy. <laughs> at least there, there's a kind of haunting and beautiful passage, <laughs> or at least unusually so for a medical journal paper. And so this is my last quote from Bean. He writes, The kind of pleasure and understanding that I get from studying natural history has long vanished from most contemporary teaching institutions that have become part of intensive care units, which are supposed to save the residual intellectual machinery of medical students. The teeming mass of hope and pain, technical virtuosity, and depersonalization called a health center delivers packets of what is termed medical care. The capacity to look remains, but the capacity to see has all but vanished. Teachers and students forget that the ability to palpate is not the same as the ability to feel. As a gentle countercurrent, I set forth here this most recent five-year installment of the observations of the growth of my left thumbnail. It is a very long record of the growth of human deciduous tissue. Its duration has little precedent in clinical medicine or human natural history. Still, the nail provides a slowly moving keratin chymograph that measures age on the inexorable abscissa of time. Oh, wow. So th there's something actually strangely profound going on here, which is by meticulously measuring the slowing of the growth of his fingernails over time, he's actually watching his body become less cellularly uh, productive every single year. As the circulation slows down, as that's one probable, at least partial explanation for it. As the body grows older, it becomes less efficient at producing new cells. Uh, the fingernail growth just slows and slows. And he's measuring it in such minute detail that he can see it happen month by month. 
as the body says, all right, we are, uh, we're going to slow down on nail production, but we're all in on ear hair. <laughs> My God, I would love to read a William Bean study on his ear hair. I, th- I think it would be <laughs> so lovely. All right, so that was 1980, but we're, we're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to consider what more recent researchers had to say about nails, and then we'll get into some other nail-related topics before we close out this first episode on the, on, on the subject. All right, we're back. All right, so in the last section, we talked about the research of a doctor named William Bean, who very carefully studied the rate of his own nail growth for 35 years. Uh, And he published that study in 1980. But I was looking for more recent stuff about the rate of nail growth. And there was a New York Times Q&A from 2011 that uh, addresses this by C. Claiborne Ray. And uh, the the author here uh, interviews Jeffrey S. Dover, an associate clinical professor of dermatology at the Yale School of Medicine, uh, who reports the following. So first of all, we still don't know all of the factors that influence the rate of nail growth, but it's generally accepted that fingernails grow about three times as fast as toenails. Robert, does this square with your experience? I don't know if it squares with mine. I mean, I don't doubt their findings, but prior oh, to this, I, if I you don't had, either. But <laughs> but but if you but but prior to this, if you had quizzed me on this, I would have guessed that the rate was more or less the same. I feel like, you know, just from when it is to, by observing my nail growth, when it is time to trim my fingernails, it's probably time to trim my toenails, though. Now, now that I think about it, maybe fingernails do seem to require trimming a little more frequently, but I would, don't know I would have guessed at this particular rate that it would be three times as fast as toenails. Yeah, I don't think I would have uh, naturally come to this conclusion either, but this seems to be a pretty consistent finding. Fingernails grow a lot faster, and, and three times the rate does seem to be the average of the findings. Um, uh, they also, of course, they confirm what William Bean uh, discovered, which is that nails tend to grow more slowly as you get older. And uh, let's see. Uh, and then speaking to Bruce Robinson, a clinical instructor of dermatology at Lenox Hill and Mount Sinai Hospitals in Manhattan, fingernail growth apparently peaks in your teens and your 20s and then declines afterwards. And then there's another very strange fact. Handedness, as in left-handed or right-handed, appears to affect the rate of fingernail growth. So if you're left-handed, the nails on your left hand will tend to grow a bit faster and vice versa. And the rate also tends to increase in summer and decrease in winter. And it tends to be a little bit faster in men than in women and tends to be a little bit faster in women during pregnancy. Hmm. Well, I mean, on the handedness side of that, uh, it, it would certainly be meeting the demand because you'd be more likely to, to use that hand for, you know, scratching at things, manipulating things with your fingernails and therefore wearing them down. Yeah. But I mean, it makes you wonder like, what's the mechanism there? Is there some yeah. genetic kind of coding for handedness that says, okay, I know, you know, do your genes say, okay, I know that you're left-handed. So let's make the nails on the left hand grow faster. Or is there something else at work? Uh, is it more kind of a, an adaptation to use of the hand? 
And so uh, as an illustration of, of the explanation of this question, uh, there, there was a study that I came across because uh, I saw a reference to it in a 2014 Wired article by Nick Stockton. But the study was by this British dermatologist named Rodney Dauber, who worked at Churchill Hospital in Oxford. And I think he sometimes lectured in dermatology at Oxford University as well. Uh, I couldn't actually find if Dauber is still alive, so I'm not sure, but I hope he is. Uh, but so around the year 1980 or 81, Dauber suffered what he described as Quote, a mallet finger deformity of the left ring finger whilst playing rugby. And so basically this means his finger got jammed. This usually happens when something strikes you hard on the fingertip and it bends the finger by force and in doing so damages the tendon that you normally use to straighten your finger. I've read that this can also be called baseball finger, but that that. I don't know, that sounds like that should mean something else, like the tip of your finger is swelling to baseball size. But with this injury, Dauber saw an opportunity to test a theory about why the fingernails grow at different rates. And he so uh, so in the spirit of William Bean, also, he performed this experiment on himself and he published the results in Clinical and Experimental Dermatology in 1981. The study was called The Effect of Immobilization on Fingernail Growth. Uh, so Dauber notes that there had been some other theories to explain the observed difference in nail growth. And some of these differences were, for example, the nails on our longest fingers tend to grow the fastest. Uh, so remember we mentioned earlier uh, Bean's finding that the middle finger has the fastest growing nail. And so maybe this is an evolutionary adaptation since the middle finger is usually a person's longest finger and likely to be the first one to come into contact with an object if you just sort of extend your whole hand. Uh, maybe we have a genetic predisposition to have a fast-growing middle fingernail. And so maybe the, the differential growth is programmed in at the genetic level. Another explanation was possibly uh, people whose fingers are immobilized due to uh, hemiparesis or neuropathy tend to show decreased fingernail growth as well. And so perhaps the lack of nerve supply slows the growth of the fingernail. Uh, but finally, there was another theory, which is known as terminal trauma. <laughs> which I should have checked uh, to see if they ever made that into like a uh, Michael Dudikoff movie or something. Uh, but but the, the terminal trauma theory is that the nails on some fingers grow faster because those fingertips are used more often. And under this idea, the more a fingertip encounters pressure or damage, the faster its nail grows. And this theory would be consistent with, with observations by uh, Legro Clark and uh, Buxton in the 1930s that both nail biters and manual workers have more rapid nail growth. So, yeah, that's a finding. If you bite your nails or if you tend to do you know hard work with your hands, your nails grow faster than in people who don't do these things. Interesting. So just supply meeting demand. Exactly. So Dauber decided to test this by comparing the growth of the nails on both of his ring fingers, both while his finger was splinted to help it heal from the rugby jam and while it was unsplinted and in normal use. And his results supported the terminal trauma theory. In general, the nails on his left hand grew slower than on his right hand. But the left ring finger, which was in the splint, it, that nail grew even more slowly while it was splinted and thus immobilized. And once he could use his finger again, the nail grew faster. 
an also interesting note in general the uh so if you're if you're right-handed the left-hand nails tend to grow more slowly than than your right hand but no matter uh, how your handedness breaks down toenails tend to grow at the same speed on the left and right so this might be a result of handedness being more important for you know what you do with your limbs than footedness now, something that comes to mind on that point, and this would this would have to be something. Uh, this would actually be a, a kind of topic uh, that I would I would love to look at in the, in the future. Is what do, what effect do shoes have on this? Oh. Because because of course we so many of us wear shoes of great uh, n- number of us, and certainly I think individuals more likely to be heading up or participating in a study uh, of this sort. And we know uh, from that that shoes change uh, like the, the the shape of our foot. You know that the, these are these are not natural um, uh, sheaths that we're putting our, our feet into. And I wonder if if our shoes would be serving to apply more of a a constant and sustained pressure on the nails. Um, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of an open question for me. Well, yeah, I wonder. Uh, I wondered about exactly that kind of thing. So, why do the toenails grow slower than the fingernails? I wonder if that is natural among all people, no matter what you do with your feet, or mm-hmm. if that is more an artifact of shoe wearing. Like, I wonder if if you run around barefoot a lot, or often like kicking at things with your toes, would your toenails grow faster? Right. Well, yeah, that's another good point. Yeah. Like, like I, I guess I, I think of like the beach person who is going out barefooted a lot. Like on one hand, you're not going to have the end of your shoe um, pushing against your toenails or, you know, constra- restraining your feet. But perhaps you're you're more likely to, you know, to scratch around at things, to use your toenails in a way that is more in keeping with uh, their their evolved purpose, I guess. Yeah, I uh, I didn't find any evidence of whether anybody has studied this question, but uh, if if you are a a toenail fingernail researcher out there, maybe look into this. Does being a barefoot person make the difference? Yeah. But anyway, to summarize it, so I think it looks like there's pretty good evidence that when fingertips are put to more work by touching things, doing, you know, just generally manipulating objects, putting pressure on the fingertips, uh, wear and tear, the nails grow faster. And this could explain part of the difference in growth made by handedness and the differences that are observed based on what we do with our hands, such as if you're a manual worker. Uh, but that brings us to, I guess, the last thing I wanted to talk about before we have to wrap up this first episode, um, which is coming back to the idea of humans as a non-clawed animal. Of course, you know, so we we think about animals like big cats that have powerful teeth and claws, hard parts anchored in the bodies for tearing the flesh the flesh of other animals. And in contrast, humans don't have claws, so we have tools, we have uh, claw-like hard tool power at our fingertips. But in a way, nails are still sort of like claws, even if in diminished form. And what seems to be definitely true is that nails evolved from organs that were very claw-like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, certainly, when we look to, to other primates, uh, we see uh, we, we see true claws and things more like like true claws versus our own fingernails, which are still useful. Again, uh, these are very useful to scratch, to scrape, and, and and I think a lot of us find this to be the case to manipulate very small objects. Yeah, uh, which you know, which of course is is very much the domain of um, of. Of, of human uh, ingenuity, you know, uh, even even those of us who have um, were fortunate enough, or or just 
through the luck of our lives or not doing a lot of like 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 intensive labor, you're still going to have to pick up a pin off the the floor at some point, right? You're still going to have to occasionally engage in that kind of uh, you know a fine manipulation of small things, and th- for that, our nails are are, are perfect. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I would say probably the characteristic motor activities of human beings compared to other animals. One is what you do with your with your like throat and your mouth is language, of course. And the other is fine motor movements with the fingertips. Right. Uh, but of course, we do have tools that, that stand in for a lot of these other uses. So we don't need a great big old, uh, you know, velociraptor type talon or anything because we have other tools that can stand in. Uh, for that uh, that sort of claw, and uh, and, and so this is uh, thought uh, by many to, to to play a role in the the, ch- the changing shape of our fingers over uh, human evolution. Um, so basically, our, our primate ancestors had something more like true claws, and it's and we have these stunted, flattened versions of claws. And the reason here may be because some 2.5 million years ago, or, you know, or, or more, we started using tools and two things impacted the shape of our fingers and nails. First of all, curved nails would have increasingly gotten in the way of tool manipulation. And then secondly, broader fingertips allowed us to better grip uh, stone tools. Oh, I see. Okay. So if you have more of a claw at your fingertip, it makes more sense for your finger to narrow more, taper toward the end. Whereas if you don't have a claw at the end, it makes more sense to have a flatter, broader fingertip that can probably more easily close around an object and keep it steady. Yeah. I mean, think of some of our clawed humanoid icons. Uh, think of Edward Scissorhands or <laughs> Freddy Krueger or, you know, various sort of humanoid monsters that have long uh, tapering fingernails. It, you might sometimes wonder, well, all right, well, those claws are great if you're trimming hedges there or, or um, you know, harassing uh, teenagers in their dreams. But what do you do when you need to manipulate another tool? Uh, you're going to kind of be, uh, you know, um, up the creek in that regard. Pumpkinhead can't play tennis. Yeah. And then here's another interesting thing to think about. Um what about, what, what about, uh, yeah, okay, obviously, Edward Scissorhands, Freddy Krueger, you know, they have those impressive nails if they get in a fight. But could they throw a punch? Could Freddy Krueger throw a punch? How about these various, <laughs> uh, like, uh, lizard man creatures that show up in all manner of sci-fi and fantasy? Uh, they, they just always have to slash and bite, right? I mean, they couldn't, because uh, c- uh, when you have, uh, uh, you know, claws, uh, you're, not, you're probably going to have a difficulty forming a fist. So we know that, that tool use uh, seems to have played a role in the, the evolution and form of our hand. And there have also been some interesting studies that look at how the ability to, to, to form a fist uh, and essentially throw a punch uh, may have played a role in the form of our hand as well. Oh, yeah, that, that's an interesting hypothesis. Though, I mean, I wonder um, – I often wonder about the idea of, of uh, punching as an adaptation just because it so often results in the injury of one's own hand when you do it. Right. Well, that is that is something that these studies have looked into. And uh, we have some pat- – they may be many years old at this point. But I remember that was one of the, the, the factors that was considered, like that sweet point um, in, the, in the formation of the hand where it can both potentially – form a fist and land a punch while also maintaining its integrity without damaging the thing that you need for tool manipulation. Mm. Uh, so it's, you know, kind of a delicate balance there. Uh, but, but this led to an interesting question that I've often had, uh, and, and that is, are sharpened nails 
useful in a in say a stand up fight? <laughs> uh, would they be an advantage uh, in in a fight? And um, uh, this is one of these things that's kind of been like an idle speculation before. I I, I remember. I remember seeing like a music video or a poster where Glenn Danzig, uh, the rock musician, has um, like sharpened fingernails and and trying to figure out like what the limitations and or advantages of that would be. (laughs) Well, you know, I got to say, if I were to imagine going into a fight with with long, sharpened fingernails, I think I would honestly be more worried about about trauma to my fingernails in the fight than I would be excited about my ability to use them as a weapon. Um, And this comes back to the duality we talked about earlier, like our hard parts, like teeth and nails, for some reason, uh, even though they are the hard parts, we have kind of like special uh, fears of trauma toward them. And, And if you had long nails in a real scuffle, that just seems like a real liability. Yeah, and that that seems to be part of the consensus. I was looking around at this. I couldn't find any real studies on this, uh, but I was I found a lot of discussion about this on martial arts boards. Um, so on one level, people would say, okay, in a stand up fight, if you were someone was after you, at being able to scratch someone with your nails is not a bad deterrent because you can irritate tissue, you can uh, you know you can go for the eyes, and then also something worth keeping in mind is that your nails, as they scrape tissue, they collect tissue, uh, which provides a genetic sample of an attacker mm-hmm. uh, potentially. Uh, but others also point out, okay, well, this idea of sharpening your nails or having long nails for uh, you know to benefit you in a fight. Ultimately, these are the these can end up bending backwards rather than gouge in a uh, you know a high pressure situation, and that also it might uh, make forming a fist that much harder to do. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I, it doesn't look like there's a lot of evidence for the idea that that our nails are are really a um, you know that much of a defensive benefit, though. Obviously, they can be used to scratch and claw uh, if need be. So they're not com- they're not completely useless in that regard, but uh, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of ways to really uh, encourage them back towards a more defensive claw purpose that we would find in other animals. Interesting. Uh, so, so has Danzig never commented on why he's got long fingernails? He doesn't say anything about it. I, I do not know. It's possible that he did, uh, um, and I'm just I'm just not aware of it. I'm, I, I can't say that I've read a lot of interviews with the man uh, <laughs> over the years, uh, uh, but I, I imagine that the the case there was that uh, he did it because it looked cool and creepy. You know, kind of like uh, something out of a Nosferatu movie, right? You see so many so many different types of vampires and ghouls and creeps that have have long nails, long tapering nails, and it you know it it looks creepy and cool. I would say the ultimate example uh, of that for me is the way Klaus Kinski looks in Werner Herzog's Nosferatu, where he's got long, creepy nails. Ooh, it's 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 spine tingling. Oh yeah, those are some those are some wonderfully uh, nasty fingernails. I had to, I had to reacquaint myself. Look up a picture of that. It's been a while since I've I, I've seen it. Though I guess the the original Nosferatu also had some pretty creepy nails, and uh, the Willem Dafoe uh, version also uh, pretty ghastly. Oh, Shadow of a Vampire. Yeah, that's a great movie. Actually, I feel like that that is a a, a sort of forgotten gem. Huh, I, I need to revisit it. Or shadow? Did I say shadow of a vampire? Shadow of the vampire? I can't remember what the article is, but it's the one with Willem Dafoe as Max Schreck, and it, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, I want to say it's the same director who had done that really weird art film, Begotten, uh, prior to that, uh, which which I don't think there's really any comparison to be made between the, the short film and uh, 
in the vampire film, but um, I don't know, interesting bit of film trivia nonetheless. No, I never saw that one. Well, Robert, I'm sorry. We're here on vampires, and I know we're out of time, so we got to wrap up part one. But vampires is the perfect lead-in to next time, where we're going to be talking about corpses and mythology and magic and religion all surrounding beliefs about nails. That's right. So be sure to uh, tune back in. Uh, I guess this will be Thursday. We will continue our discussion of fingernails. In the meantime, if you would like to get in touch with us, so we'd love to hear from you. Obviously, you all have fingernails, or at least you've had them at some point. Uh, same goes for your toenails. You have uh, useful information about this topic. You have experiences. You have, you have injuries. Uh, you have fighting experience, etc. All these things that you might wish to share with us, and we would like to hear from you. Uh, likewise, uh, just a, another reminder that if you use the Facebook, there is a Facebook group uh, for our show. It is the uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, which you can... Uh, uh, you know, asked to be invited to, however it works. Uh, I'm not sure. But uh, basically, we're not active on any real social media account out there. But uh, you, there is a fair amount of activity in that one little place. Uh, so I encourage you to check it out if you wish. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, check out some of these past topics of discussion. Uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcast, And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback from this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 